Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. On this episode, we're looking back at some of my favorite bits from previous episodes, focusing on the geeky and technical moments, and especially those which relate to flavor in its many guises. First up, here's a clip from an episode from March of 2021, where I was joined by coffee experts James Hoffman and Timon Kaufman. In the clip, Timon describes a unique-sounding fermented drink that combined method champenoise and leftover espresso to great effect. The first drink um, with the fermentation I was talking about was basically because, like in a lot of uh, quality coffee shops, um, we were only pulling double shots back then. And um, we still sold single shots. So that meaning if, if we were not super busy, all those single shots, either we had to drink it by ourselves, which could be painful at a certain point, uh, or we had to dump it. And I thought I want to do something with it because it's it's a shame to to throw away the precious coffee, and fifty um, percent of everything yeah, you make, kind of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, I started collecting it, even knowing that I can use it anymore at the end of the shift. But I wanted to do something else with it. So um, as I as I'm coming from bar background and I'm a big fan of champagne, I try to use this technique to do something else out of of the coffee basically so um, i used the the method champenoise so the the champagne making method to um yeah use the coffee again so i added a little bit of of uh, sugar and some i i experimented with different kinds of yeast beer yeast champagne yeast wine yeast um, and ended up with uh, port wine yeast and put it into a bottle and let um, the yeast do its thing, basically, to get a really nice carbonization and um, basically a, a totally new coffee beverage out of it. And then um, you can take out the yeast when it's done its job and as much sugar as you want and um, have a really nice and interesting beverage. Of course, it doesn't have anything to do anymore with the... Uh, the original coffee because the yeast is there and you got the the uh, carbonization and it's but it's a super interesting and super fun thing to do with coffee and uh, use it as a filler afterwards you know and did low ABV drink with a, a tiny tiny bit of, of vodka uh, like Kettle one um, a little bit of port wine and used the 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 champagne basically the coffee champagne as a filler uh, which made it a super interesting coffee drink, which nobody expected to be coffee at the end of the day. So what sort of um, strength was the coffee at when you're fermenting it? You say you're using the, the spare shots of espresso and then diluting it with water, presumably. Yeah, exactly. So I, I basically made an Americano out of, out of it. Yeah, So I used the, okay. the espresso as a base and filled it up with with water later was going on to to uh, do some tryouts with filter coffee so you get a different result with that again um yeah exactly so this was basically the base and then um it's just carbonating the so it's uh, fermenting in the bottle you're not producing a lot of alcohol it's carbon dioxide mostly um yeah. i mean it's it's uh, depending on how much sugar you use and how long you, yeah, you yeah. let it ferment basically on the yeast um to be honest i never did a test how much alcohol it has inside afterwards because i was mixing up mixing it up with alcohol anyway so um as yeah. long as the taste was fine and then what does it taste like tell it describe it to us i, I mean is, uh, yeast often produces like acidity so I'm, I'm thinking coffee that's sort of up the acidity a bit more 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course, you get a little bit of acidity depending on how much of a dosage you put in there afterwards. So how much sugar you you sweeten up to get like uh, brute or uh, semi dry or whatever. Um, but uh, of course, you get uh, yeasty flavors. You still have the coffee going on. You got a lot of acidity and uh, floral notes as well. So it totally depends on what kind of coffee you take and what kind of yeast, uh, for example. So I, I would never go with with a beer yeast or something like this because this just overpowers everything. It's just yeast at the end of the day. But wine yeast, port yeast, champagne yeast, this works quite fine. Oh, interesting. Have you ever had fermented coffee, James? I've had a bunch of like uh, coffee kombuchas and that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, for me, I find that once you get too much of like an acetic profile in there, the coffee kind of fights back against it and you have this real kind of co like a, a lack of harmony there. I know they can be done. I think the Coffee Collective in Denmark do a fantastic coffee kombucha, but really difficult mm. to do. Um, but outside of that, no, not a lot of other fermentations, which feels like a shame because it's a huge playground, right, of flavor. So... Yeah, I, I think more people should be trying it. I'm imagining quite a cool sort of foamy pour with it, like frothing up in the glass. It must be quite good. It's basically like like champagne. Because CO2 and coffee, that's another one that I'm trying to work out in my head whether or not that's going to feel right or not on the palate. Fizzy coffee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, it's something uh, that's, that's the same point as uh, uh, James said before. It's about how you're selling it and what, what is your imagination about it. That, that's... That's a big problem when you work with coffee, that as soon as people hear coffee, they immediately have a, a, a certain mindset of flavors in their head they're expecting from this beverage, this is, which is in front of them. And this is a little bit hard to overcome if, you, if you're playing around with coffee, um, especially if this are, people who are not experienced in specialty coffee and light roast coffees. Um, it can be, yeah... A little bit of throwing if you're expecting something different. In an earlier, even geekier part of the episode, I asked James to summarise different extraction methods of coffee for use in cocktails and the potential for fat-based extracts to capture the complete flavour of the coffee spectrum. I don't know if you can speak in broad sweeping generalisations. You, you definitely get a different bitterness profile. And I think from that perspective, I've historically been a fan of things like milk washing, coffee infusions because i do think that that little bit of milk does help mop up some of those additional bitterness sort of additional bitter characteristics you get from kind of coffee infusions into booze i think you do get a slightly broader aromatic spectrum from it you know what i mean like um if you do full um oil infusions so if you go all the way into sort of non-polar are we going down this route here is this <laughs> okay, fine um if you go all the way into the sort of fully non-polar flavor compounds, you get a lot of the flavors that, that remind you of how coffee smells when it grinds. You know, there's a gap between how coffee mm. smells when you grind it and how it tastes when you mm. brew it. There's a little, there's a piece missing there. And probably a good part of that is just simply not water soluble, um, but they are oil soluble. And you do get a little bit more of that with alcohol. If you're in a strong enough, you know, if your alcohol percentage is high enough in your infusion liquid, um, so yeah, you get a slightly fuller profile, but you will get more bitterness as well. Typically, I find there's a bit more attack and harshness up front on a straight infusion that needs to be moderated in some way before it goes into a finished drink. And I mean, I guess you get the inevitable alcohol burn as well, right? Which is obviously going to play into the coffee flavor and not necessarily in a good way, which I guess tends to be why 
you know, most coffee infusions are sweetened, right, to kind of offset some of that and perhaps the bitterness. And some of the acid as well. I think that's, you know, that's really where it helps pull back a little bit of balance too. One taste sensation you're unlikely to find in good coffee is minerality or a metallic flavour. This was the subject that came up when I spoke to renowned bartender Ryan Chetiwadana and chef Grace Ramirez in February 2021. As you'll hear, this is a subject that has fascinated Ryan in particular, culminating in the creation of his bone dry martini. When we did the the bone dry martini at um, at White Lion, somebody came in and talked about. They were like, they referenced the kakumi effect of it. They were like, there's a there's a meatiness. Mm. Um, I never got that, but it was interesting because they picked up there being like distinct from being a savoriness. It wasn't umami. Yeah, yeah. it was a meatiness. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I found that really interesting. The fact that they talked about. Do the you want to just explain that drink quickly, actually, Ryan? Yeah. Um, so it was a, a a vodka martini um, that we created for White Lion, our original bar, um, and it was. Um, exploring the idea of the texture of vodka, not adding kind of vermouth to have a, a dry martini or anything like that. It was, it was playing on the idea of a bone dry martini. So it was, it was just the spirit at its heart. Um, but then we used a bone tincture, which was taking organic, organic chicken bones that we roasted and then dissolved in an inorganic acid and dosed into the drink. And the, the effect was around the idea of minerality and like to me, it was about this kind of Burgundian style flintiness down the middle of the palate that dried your mouth out, both using the acidity and using the minerals in dissolved from from the bone. Um, so it, it technically contained bone, um, and by using the bone in which we did, it probably had some amino acids in there. I mean, I don't know enough about chemistry to understand what um, phosphoric acid is going to strip out of, of of a pounded bone. Um, but it was, it was a really interesting response to see people kind of talk about both the minerality, but also experiencing something like this kind of Kukumi effect. Texture and taste also clashed when we recorded a special low and no episode of the podcast back in November, 2019. My guests then were drinks industry experts, Claire Warner and Barry Wilson. In this clip, both guests describe strategies and opportunities for creating depth of flavour and texture in non-alcoholic drinks. What doesn't necessarily work, I think, is when you are really using sort of lots and lots of dilution because mm. we still want to keep the flavours as concentrated as possible. And dilution really helps to open up alcohol. Mm. And where there's no alcohol, you don't necessarily need as much dilution. I, so, I totally agree. Um, so we... Uh, when Seedlip uh, was launched, uh, we were working with Ben Branson to create the service. This is yeah, Scotch and right. Limon, your, yeah. your, your brand agency. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was incredible. So we, it was the Seedlip um, space. Mm. And um, that, was, that was the first, uh, first creation. And it was trying to get that depth and that complexity and the texture within it. So we spent a morning experimenting with the perfect recipe to make a martini with Seedlip. And... We were using um, quite a little bit of olive brine in there for nice. the texture and for that, um, the, the savoury note. But then we found in um, Borough Market, I remember me and Ben were there, it was uh, Sancho peppercorns. Yeah. And, and talk about a party in your mouth mm. with that. It's like a swarm of bees in your mouth if you, if you chew one of these. So we just dropped a little bit in and let it infuse with the brine. 
and honestly, the, the, the martinis were incredible. Mm. And you're just non-alcoholic and to get that taste and texture and, and, and then savoury notes in it was, mm. was just mind-blowing. Yeah. I, remember, I remember that moment and, and Ben's face actually, you know, tasting that for the first time. He was completely blown away. And, yeah. yeah, we love Sancho. Yes. Yeah, it's a great ingredient. And Sancho, actually, we use in acorn bitter for that sort of very... Is that the reason. secret ingredient? No, we talk <sighs> about that. So was... Things got more abstract in the flavour department when I spoke with the gastrophysicist Professor Charles Spence in June of 2021. Charles spent over an hour unpicking how our brains experience flavour, including their tendency to predict tastes and flavours even when they're not there. Ultimately, it's your tongue that tells you some of what's in the food we eat, whether it's poisonous and should be ejected because it tastes bitter, uh, uh, it contains energy because it tastes sweet or uh, umami, sort of a protein. Um, so ultimately, you put everything in our mouth, but that's just kind of a messy business and take too long to stick everything around us in our mouth and see what it tastes like. Mm. So our brain tries to predict what things are going to be taste of, what nutritional value they have before, um, based on colour, which is why you know, pink and red are such powerful uh, uh, cues to sweetness, because in sort of fruits, mm. uh, in nature, but also in the supermarket, that colour very often occurs with sweetness. So I see pink, I'm expecting sweet, and then when I taste something, I can't. You can't turn water into wine by colouring it pinkish red, but you can take a slightly sweet drink and make it appear perceived indistinguishable from an actually sweeter drink because it smells sweet because it looks sweet. Um, right. So if I colour a drink red and make it smell of vanilla, yeah. I'm I'm likely to increase the perception of sweetness of that drink with ever I was drinking it. Providing it's got a bit of sweetness in it already. No, have yes. a little bit. You need to have yeah, a sort a of bit. starting yeah, it'll, point. It'll ramp it up a bit. Um, but, of course, in that case, it becomes a bit of a problem because if you ask people what, what colour is vanilla, <laughs> yeah. it's not it's not red. It's creamy colour, probably, yeah. Yeah, so there's like a disconnect there. So yeah. maybe if you give people, they'll be like, well, it looks red, so I thought it was going to taste of uh, no, red fruits and, and it smells of vanilla instead. I'm confused. It's kind of incongruent. So it's a, yeah, a bit of a challenge to get the sort of the right colours, and um, so in some of our things, we you know serve something, we put a, a drink in front of a red screen, not even the red drink, but it's a red screen. We might play some sweet music, uh, have a, add a sweet aroma to it, and, and suddenly people will rate that drink as five or ten percent sweeter than they did without. When they come to taste it, they'll rate it sweeter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's amazing. It's like and people say, well. It, it doesn't really taste sweeter. They're just saying that. But you can do, you can do sort of the, the side-by-side tests and say which of these two drinks is really sweeter and have people picking the physically less sweet drink that looks sweeter and smells sweeter than the other one. So in answer to this debate that um, I've been raging with my friends for some time, <laughs> would, would it be fair to say then that you can't smell sugar but you can smell sweet? Is that probably...? Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, yes. It's a simple answer. Probably you need know, to try and uh, there's lots of work trying to say you know, we've got sort of tastes. We can taste on our tongue sweet, sour, bitter, salty, umami, maybe kakumi, maybe metallic, um, and everything else we we can describe as taste or flavour. That's really coming from the nose, the meaty, the creamy, the herbal, the uh, the fruity, the floral. That's all from your nose. Not it's not really tasting, um, but when you try and get pure tastes just to stimulate the tongue pure sucrose or sodium chloride or caffeine, then in fact, very often they they have a hint. They're never quite pure enough 
Yeah, to be completely devoid of, of smell. Yeah. Yeah. So while, they, while I think itself it was 100% pure, you couldn't smell sugar, salt, bitter. Yeah. In fact, they're always a little bit impure, and people tend to be remarkably good at actually being able to smell what they shouldn't be able to smell, but it's only the impurities, not, it's not really the sugar them, itself. So you can add these, you know, uh, sweet colour, and we do it a lot with you know, wine experts, give them a, a white wine, colour it pink. So it's like a rosé. Yeah. And, they, and the experts, the winemakers, the wine critics, the wine writers, they all start spouting off. And the social drinkers will start saying, you know, uh, more tropical fruits, more this, that, and the other that wasn't there in the wine when it was purely white, wasn't there in the real rosé. But they're being sort of fooled by the eye because they predict they're going to taste these things. Yeah. And then their brain tries to resolve the difference between what they thought was going to be in the glass, what they're actually tasting, and more often than not, it's what we see dominates. Unless there's such a big disconnect. Uh, and when your brain says, hold on, that's just not right there. That's I thought mm. it was going to be this, and it's way off. Yeah. I thought it was going to be sweet, and it's salty. And when that happens, you get this kind of a horrible disconnect this kind of a disconfirmation of expectation yes where in fact people say they kind of rebound and go the other way and it tastes less less of what you wanted it to taste of than it actually did because consumers say this is dangerous it's in my mouth it could be fooling me i could be poisoned what's gone wrong here why has my brain got it so wrong and that's kind of negatively valenced and hence uh not normally a good place to be flavor anticipation occurs more than just in a drink's appearance Charles went on to describe how music and sound influence our taste sensations and can be used to amplify or dampen the sweetness, sourness, saltiness and bitterness of our drinks. For bitter tastes, uh, people associate really low-pitched sounds with bitter. Bitter is dark, it's low-pitched, it's heavy, it's dark colours like black. Uh, Sweet is tinkling and high-pitched, more piano, uh, clarinet for a bit of uh, acidity, also high-pitched. Uh, and so we've got dissonant, and we've got this music over here, but the pitch, the instrument, whether it's the roughness of the music, the ambitus, and I'm not a musician, but um, uh, the um, tempo and all of these things sort of listed out, and then you can either try and pick music off the shelf that has those properties, piano, tinkling, high pitch, okay, I've got, I don't know, Mike Oldfield, Tubular Bells, or Saint-Saint Carnival of the Animals or something, uh, or... Increasingly, we're sort of working with sound designers and uh, and uh, composers uh, to actually create music specifically for our taste or a, a drink experience. So that as you know, you, t- you taste a drink or, or eat a chocolate or something, you have like a, a flavor journey, and we can map that out. Ask people, just tell me every second or every five seconds, what are you getting now? Maybe it starts off sweet, but then goes a bit astringent, and then ends on a the sour note um, and the floral things kick in. And for each of those elements in a taste, we can then match the right instrument, put it all together, uh, and then have that soundscape while you're tasting and mm. sort of create this thing. And just because we're so difficult, we find it so hard to structure our thoughts about what we're tasting, to describe them, because it's so complex, we don't have the words for smells and tastes, really. Uh, having sort of a musical accompaniment can sort of help structure yeah. So sometimes we'll say, okay, whenever you hear the harps, that's candied orange. Uh, whenever you um, hear this other instrument, that's ginger biscuits. And then we make musical compositions, and whenever you hear the harp, you suddenly think, okay, candied orange. And then you, just like when I when the, when the when the wine expert prompts you, you're going to taste this, the mintiness. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, you can do it in this almost synesthetic way, but sort of draw your attention to something through 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 music and where this comes from. Why is bitter low pitch? Hmm. No one knows. Um, I've got my I've got my just so story, uh, 
which is I bet it's universal that because if you look at newborn babies, um, if you stick a sweet taste on the tongue of a newborn baby, it'll go, it will lick to ingest the calories for growth. Put a bitter taste on a newborn baby's tongue, and the tongue will go out and down, eject. We're born to think bitter is potentially bit, uh, poisonous. Yeah. And so um, if you think about the sort of sounds babies make with their tongues out and down, slightly different in pitch. <laughs> and we'll all do that. And our brain just picks up these correlations that, you know, that green is sour, that red is sweet in nature, that babies make sounds with bitter taste and sounds with sweet taste. And chimps do that. Humans do that. Rats do that. Um, it's everywhere in the world. It's just a statistic of nature, a link between taste and sound. And it's for that reason, maybe, that, that sweet tastes are high-pitched. Finally, I had a very insightful conversation with bar operators Max and Noel Venning, who literally wrote the book on batching cocktails. One of their most celebrated drinks is a modern take on the French 75, which is pre-batched and carbonated, then served like a bottle of wine. I asked them to give me a primer on carbonation and how to set up a carbonation rig in a bar. Work cold is the most important thing, I think. Work cold and... Um, Clarity, yeah. If you're going to force carbonate in plastic bottles, buy decent quality plastic bottles because they will mm. explode. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, clarity is important. Like... Yeah, it froths up if it's, if it's got too much kind of stuff floating around in it, hasn't it? Yeah, um... I mean, you can get... Uh, you can get a... I can't be can't be like a, a clar- like an orange juice with bits, but uh, a liquid that isn't completely clarified, you can get to to a certain level of carbonation. It just as soon as you open it, it just won't hold it basically. Um, and then yeah, so we talk about temperature as well. So it's just much better to carbonate. You get much more carbon dioxide in and much quicker when it's cold, right? Yeah, a lot. Co- yeah. So if you can start off with your liquid cold before you start carbonating, the process is a lot quicker. But if you can't, we at three sheets uh, in ice, we always put it in ice. It's the coldest we can get it. And, yeah, just the colder the better because it will absorb more carbon dioxide. And then do you do you build, like, a kind of carbonation rig, for want of a better term, gas canister yes. and a pressure yeah. controller? Gas canister, regulator, uh, ball lock, disconnect, and carbonation caps, yeah. 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 And uh, that's pretty, like, Googleable kind of stuff, isn't it, for anyone that wants to... It's easy enough to to set up if you just speak to your gas supplier. You can get the, all the connections and stuff. You might have to search Google for like the carbonation caps and ball lock disconnects, and but it's all really easy to find. Yeah. If you want to learn about the science of cocktails, if you want to learn about like how to produce things with with especially carbonation clarification, then Dave Arnold, like either his book or his online blog, is is the one to go to because that's where. You know, luckily enough, I did some work with him back in the day. And, he, you know, he comes at it from a food science point of view and breaks it down pretty easily and, and like, fully. We've set up, we've now set up a bright tank rig, which is a bit more intense, but allows us to carbonate, you know, 130 litres at a time instead of one <laughs> a litre and a half at a time. So mm-hmm. this, you know changes the game for us in terms of producing like a big batch of, of carbonated cocktails which you know is great for the bar but obviously really aimed at the bottled cocktail line thanks for listening to this special episode of bar chat if you enjoyed some of these moments you can catch the full episodes on your preferred podcast channel and don't forget to rate and subscribe to hear more thank you for listening until next time <laughs>